Hello, my name is Knut Peterson. Uh, I don't want to take up any space here, but I thought I'd get things going. Uh, Mike, we asked the same question last year uh, uh, to Andrew Haken. How long, uh, how big can a university get and still remain small? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the $64,000 question for sure. Uh, and I... I'm not going to try and guess what Andy answered last year, but what I would say uh, is that, uh, you know, the University of Lethbridge has grown, as you know, dramatically over the last 10 years. We've really doubled in student population in 10 years. And we're, we're coming close, I would say, to a student population that does challenge us to continue to describe ourselves as a, as a small, um, primarily undergraduate university. And so... In the future, if possible, we would like to maintain the relative size of our undergraduate population and grow our graduate population. And so in the, in the, uh, the uh, one slide, I, I talked about uh, the growth of the graduate population as one way to address the changing dynamics of, the, um, uh, of our population, as well as to address the interests of an aging population. And so I would say in the future, that's where we see ourselves going. We have projected over the last um, few years modest growth. Uh, this past year, we grew by a little over 3%. We would choose to, to stay at very modest growth if we could manage it uh, because we do think that from a positioning perspective and as it relates to our, our um, vision of being a destination university, part of the attraction for students is the smaller university size is the size of our class, classes, is the kind of um, culture and experience and, and student engagement that we can create on campus. Having come from a university up the road that's 37,000 students, I can tell you that uh, trying to maintain a sense of student engagement and, a, and the kind of culture that we hear, have here at the University of Lethbridge is very, very challenging. I'm not as tall as Knut. Francis Schultz. And I, I would like to go back to the information that you gave us respect, with respect to gender. Um, and I have a couple of questions about that. Because the situation in Alberta, certainly for the last 10 years that you showed in your graph, uh, was totally different in terms of hiring opportunities, job opportunities for young men right out of high school than it was for, for women. And my question is, does that statistic that you showed in the graph reflect in all universities across Canada? And the second question I would like to ask is, what, how does this relate to the graduate programs at the university? Um. So in terms of the, um, uh, the first question, does it relate to all universities? Um, it, it does for the most part. Like when we look at across the country, when we look at the, um, the, the number of uh, men versus women on various campuses uh, in, uh, in Canada, we see in general that uh, the, the numbers are, are um, moving in this direction. There, there would be some variability, but there wouldn't be a lot of variability. And um, so I would say, in general, um, this is the case. Now, as it relates to graduate programs, um, 
I'm just looking. I have actually a cheat sheet on gender or, or on a variety of stats, and I, I don't see the numbers uh, relative to uh, uh, gender at the graduate level. But um, what I would say is the trends are, are relatively similar, uh, and I'll use uh, medicine as an example. When you look at, at, at say, the Faculty of Medicine in, in, uh, at the University of Alberta and, and the University of Calgary, you see dramatic changes in terms of the number of women versus men that are going into medicine and, and other graduate kinds of programs. Now, there's still um, gender differences when you look across different disciplines. So if you take engineering as, a, as an example that we don't have uh, here at the University of Lethbridge, but that is at the U of C and U of A, you see a dramatic uh, reverse in, in that, uh, though there is some progress being made in engineering uh, in terms of gender um, on the whole, there is still a massive difference in terms of men versus women. Uh, so so it is a, it, it's a trend, and I would say in general the trend is that women are pursuing post-secondary education more than men. And uh, it certainly, I guess, depends on your perspective whether that's a troubling uh, trend or not. I, I like to think of it as a challenge for us to create um, some level of sort of uh, equality in terms of what different individuals pursue from a career perspective and the extent to which we can try to influence um, you know, both uh, men and women thinking about post-secondary as an opportunity, the better it is, I think, from a societal perspective. So when you, whether it's teachers or doctors or engineers or, or the like, I think having as much gender equity uh, as possible, I think, is a good thing. <coughs> Douglas Mitchell. I'm uh, very pleased, Dr. Mahon, that you concentrate on the academic side. And as a very old athlete ex-athlete, uh, because of your basic training, I'm very interested to know what your take is on the role of sports within the university. I think I'd be very concerned if we emphasize that too much and follow some of the American pattern where the concentration is more on the the, the individual's ability rather than its the academic standards. Could you address that? Sure, thank you. And certainly, as a as a broken down jock of uh, many years, I feel qualified to talk about the role of um, broken down jocks in society. And um, so, first of all, I would say I do think that uh, sport does play an important role uh, within the context of, of schools, both. Uh, uh, elementary, high school, and, and post-secondary. I think in the same way that uh, opportunities in music and dance and debating and others play an important role within the context of schools. Anytime we can create a diversity of opportunities for our students such that they leave uh, a university campus having had a full engagement from an academic uh, experience, but also a broader engagement related to their interests, I think we've done a good job uh, as, as a university or even as a high school. When I look south, and, and I went to a, a university, uh, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill in the U.S., and that's a big uh, U.S. school that's where the Tar Heel basketball team plays. Michael Jordan went to school there. So that's about as, as intense a sport university as you can get. Um, I can say that I'm troubled uh, by the U.S. model as it relates to sport. 
I think there's far too much attention paid on the economic side of of uh, sport in, in U.S. colleges. When I was at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, I can tell you they went on a fundraising campaign for um, their basketball team to build a new arena, and they built a new 20,000-seat arena, and they had enough money left over from their fundraising campaign to build a new swimming pool, and they also put an extension on the library, and that was raising uh, money for a basketball team. So the economics as it relates to sport in the U.S., drive uh, university sport, and I would say in Canada uh, that has not been the case, uh, and I think Canada has a much better uh, way of looking at university sport, which it is an, an experience for students who are student-athletes. We should provide it. We should do the best job we can with it, but we should do the same for students that are interested in, in as I said, the arts and debating and all sorts of other clubs on campus. <coughs> Mary Shillington, I'm a retired social worker, and uh, uh, I appreciated your comments. Uh, and I know from something I read earlier about you that one of the things that impacted on you was doing some volunteer work or practicum placement. And so uh, social work, of course, has practicums. Uh, uh, some universities do co-op programs. Uh, what kind of things do you, do you see as potential here at UofL uh, that could, could help that kind of thing? Sure, thank you. Thanks very much for that question. Well, first of all, the U of L has had a longstanding uh, experience and commitment to uh, students being engaged in different kinds of community experiences. We do have co-op programs. Our education program is considered nec- uh, second to none in Canada, and when you look at why, in the end, it's because of the fact that the students spend three times the amount of time in the in the classroom engaged with young people as as students at say the University of Calgary University of Alberta so we have a long standing commitment to students being engaged in the community what i said at my installation address is that um, in part based on my own personal experience as a young person and as a student but also in part as uh, as a professor who um, as part of my classes when i was uh, back doing what i was in theory, trained to do, which was to be a professor, um, I had students very engaged in different community experiences. And so what I'd like to see uh, over time is that ultimately all of our students, when they graduate, will have had some kind of community engagement experience as a part of their academic experience. That may be something that they do in the community of Lethbridge. That may be something they do when they go back home to Picture Butte. That may be something they do uh, internationally as part of an academic experience. But ultimately, um, my thoughts on this are if we can enable our students to leave uh, with a degree, uh, with a liberal education foundation, uh, peppered with some community experience that enables them to understand the broader world, that we're doing the best job we can for them as they move into society. We're doing a better job for society in terms of preparing the citizens of tomorrow, but we're also doing something in the short uh, term for society in terms of having students enable in the community to work with different groups and to uh, help make both local community and and the broader provincial, national, and international community a better place to live. And as I've uh, talked about this with different groups uh, in Alberta and outside of Alberta, there's been tremendous enthusiasm, more enthusiasm than I actually expected. And I think in part it's because people really understand the extent to which our communities um, really need volunteers. 
without volunteers, the kinds of things that we have within our community simply wouldn't exist. I mean, this, this forum we're at today only exists because there's a group of volunteers that see the value in creating something like this on a yearly basis. All of the different community groups that work in Lathbridge and southern Alberta to make this place the, the place it is uh, are, is really driven by volunteerism. So I think it's critical that our young people understand volunteerism as, a, as an expectation uh, of citizens within the province. And if we, can, if we can do that for our young people, we've given them something in many ways that will take them uh, a long way, I think, in their lives. Hello. Uh, thanks very much for coming, and thanks for having the, the university here in Alberta. I moved here 35 years ago partially because there was a university. I lived in a different province uh, in a community about the same size as this that was trying to get even a community college in their midst, let alone a university. They would have loved to have had a university. And when I got the chance to come here and knew that there was both a college and a university, it helped my decision to move here. I've seen uh, professors sit on, on community boards, all sorts of wonderful talks here at SACPA, uh, started by one of the, your original professors. And um, the SACPA on campus, I go and hear a lot of the talks there. Uh, learned an awful lot. One of the, th the burning issues, and this is what my question will be, is what... Um, one of the bumps in the road that I see and hear about from both students at U of L and also some from some faculty is economic uh, academic freedom. Is there going to be enough academic freedom that you can be a, a critic, continue to be uh, a critic of what's going on in society and in Alberta? Uh, a point that I'd like to bring up is: Could you answer something along the where Aboriginal issues bump into scientific issues? In the North, in the Herald, in the last couple of days, there's been a, a scientist from the United States refused to go on an environmental council because she's outnumbered by professional people in the business. And she said it really bothered her there was no Aboriginal representation in the North. I think that's about to happen here on the reserve. I went to a meeting uh, the other night in Standoff, and you want to support Aboriginal students and the Aboriginal community, the drilling that is occurring about to occur in, in fracking on the reserve is a, a terrible thing that's about to happen, may ruin our water system, and uh, has tremendous implications. What if the students who are Aboriginal students and the faculty from Native American Studies wanted to really take that issue on? Would corporations stop you from getting funding because you're bold enough to stand with Aboriginal people against the corporations? Where's academic freedom? I see that as a possible bump in the road. And that's, I'm not a professor, but I hear professors talking about it. And I hear students saying the universities, universities across Canada are getting bought off by corporations. Thanks for the question. Great question. I was hoping for a piercing question, and there's a good one. Um, so uh, first of all, uh, on uh, very specifically the topic of academic freedom, I would say that... Uh, you know, academic freedom is foundational to uh, what universities are and how we operate. And so uh, everything from the courses that our professors create to the research they conduct to the conversations they have in the hallways with students to uh, the extent to which they write um, letters to the editor and the uh, herald uh, and on and on is something that we um, firmly believe in celebrate and remain committed to. 
And so as a university and as a president of a university, uh, I can say that uh, we remain absolutely firmly committed to academic freedom. Uh, full stop. Uh, no debate. The extent to which academic freedom then um, comes uh, uh, into play when there are challenging issues, there's no question that is the case. And uh, th those issues are becoming more and more burning, I would say, because society is becoming more and more concerned with some fairly critical issues. Aboriginal issues are certainly one. Uh, the environment, and you talked about the interplay between the environment and, and Aboriginal issues is another. Uh, the extent to which um, uh, you know, universities are or are not funded by corporations that have uh, particular things that they're engaged in that may or may not be seen as productive kinds of activities uh, are another and many, many more. And so there is no question that we have to continue to be vigilant in terms of how we, how we manage through these kinds of challenges. And so the, the specific example you gave uh, relative to some of our faculty members um, uh, you know, sort of uh, beginning to engage in discussions uh, about activities uh, on the reserve that might um, come up against uh, uh, perspectives of corporations. This is actually something that happens all the time, I would argue. And um, I'll give you a great example from my former university, uh, the University of Alberta. There's a very well-known scientist, David Schindler, who does a lot of water research. And you've probably uh, seen him quoted lots and and he's on the TV more than probably many academics in Canada. Well, David Schindler uh, has, I, I would, it would be probably be impossible to count how many times he has criticized a corporation or the provincial government or the federal government or a municipality uh, about their activities as it relates to water management and the, and, uh, the issue of, of uh, the environment. And uh, I was always very proud as a dean and professor at the University of Alberta the extent to which this, this was um, accepted and embraced by the U of A as part of his responsibility uh, as an academic and, and part of the university's commitment to, um, to facilitating that kind of uh, engagement and discussion. And so I would say the same thing. If, if some of our faculty mem members from Native American Studies um, began to discuss publicly uh, about an issue such as you've identified, uh, I would be the first one to uh, support that discussion because that's fundamental to uh, free society and I think universities play a critical role in free society. Uh, does that mean that um, I won't or wouldn't as a university president have challenges because of that? Absolutely not. I mean, this is one of the challenges for uh, administration often is that... Um, we are criticized for supporting academic freedom in our professors. Uh, there are many examples I could give you, but I, I won't because of confidentiality, of issues I've dealt with just in the last year along the lines that you're talking about. And um, it, it is a challenge for us because we, we have to support academic freedom, but we get criticized. We get criticized by politicians. We get criticized by uh, folks in the media. We get criticized by people in, in various... Um, uh, you know, parts of the economy, but it is who we are as, as a university. Quick comment, just thank you for, um, for bringing up Dr. Schindler because he was in my mind in, in asking the question, so if you are a part of supporting him, that's exactly what we need. Thank you. I don't always agree with him, but... <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, my name is Frank Toth. I'm normally, I bring up the rear in these questions. I think we're overboard already. I wish I had a good question, my predecessor questioner, because that, in my mind, that's the best thing, that we can even discuss our freedoms. We're lacking thereof. But I want to congratulate, I want to c congratulate you on your beautiful uh, all-around speech of what, what you, you do. Uh, and I want to congratulate your university students, basically, for electing a gal past you. I was just talking to her yesterday on the phone as president of the, of the ra radical so-called uh, students' unions of the world that make, make things work. Absolutely. My question really relates to uh, our uh, parents that want, want, want to make every youngster a Gretzky in hockey, uh, 18-year-old earning four, five, six, seven million dollars a year. Uh, I wonder your original background, athletics, so you could, you you know exactly what that happens with the Americans. Uh, they got to be athletes first. I have a grandson. Just uh, he was he was scouted at the age of twelve in baseball, and he's going to one of the universities now that uh, that uh, promotes. Uh, he had to, he had to go to three different universities to apply. They watched him pitch and so qual qualify to go on to the best university. But as I go say, how many students, how many hockey players uh, that strive to be millionaires at the age of whatever go to university after their fall or demise, what percentage go, go, to, go to university better themselves, their second occupation? Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting topic, and certainly when I, I've given uh, talks over the years to parents about thinking about how you engage your kids as it relates to their involvement in sport, and I always use hockey as the example because I, I can't remember the exact stat, but I think it's 0.0001% of um, individuals um, that play minor hockey ever make it to the NHL, and so one of the real challenges for parents is uh, many have this warped sense of uh, the extent to which their children will, quote, make it and, uh, you know, and how they engage their kids in minor hockey and other, in other sports. So it really speaks to the, the earlier point about the um, importance of understanding the relative uh, relationship between academics and sport. As it relates to the actual question about uh, the percentage of students, I don't know that stat off the top of my head, but what I can tell you um, is uh, actually a very good program, and that is the, um, the Western Canada Hockey League, so that, you know, that the, West, uh, the Lethbridge Hurricanes play in, um, have a, um, an academic uh, scholarship program so that for every year uh, an athlete plays hockey for uh, the Lethbridge Hurricanes, they receive a year of tuition and books uh, for them to pursue post-secondary education after they finish up in, in um, the, well, actually it's the Canadian Hockey League, both Western Canada and the Canadian Hockey League. So the, the good news on that front is that for all those kids that leave home often at 16 to go play in Moose Jaw or, or wherever, uh, they do have the opportunity to pursue a degree in a Canadian university after they're done, and many, many do. In fact, many of our, our uh, the players on our hockey team 
um, our players that played in in the uh, Western Canada Hockey League and then came back to school. And so, though they're a little older, it's a terrific opportunity for them to do so. So I'm a big supporter of that model, uh, and I think ultimately it, it creates some great opportunities for, for young folks to go back to school. My name is Van Christou. <clears throat> I, uh, too, uh, Dr. Mann, would like to thank you for taking the time out of a very busy schedule to be here with us today. And my comment and question relates to that. Since the global meltdown in 2008, um, there's been a lot of fear globally for security and uh, people worrying about, about the future economic conditions. And all of that seems to melt down to governments cutting back on education. Uh, this is not just a provincial thing. This is a, a global thing, but we're certainly involved in it provincially as well. Uh, recently, um, the former Prime Minister of Great Britain, Gordon Brown, in an address said that he's expressed his concern for the state of California taking the leadership in the United States in cutting down on education right now. They've already done it. And that it's going to spread throughout the United States. And he pointed out that as that's happening, the university scene is changing dramatically in the Far East, where they're building many more universities. They're pushing ahead. They're investing more money than ever. And that his fear is that in five to ten years, we'll lose the political, the advantage, the economic advantage that we have uh, in high technology, because that's all we have now. We've lost most of our industries to the Far East. If we lose that as well, he expressed extreme fear that we're going to be in a really bad position. So uh, my question is, what's the responsibility of us who are not presidents of the university to take this under advisement and, and take and act uh, politically so that we don't see that happening in our province? Thanks for the question. I understand this is the last question, and what a great last question. I would say, first of all, I think he's absolutely right, Gordon Brown. There is a very interesting trend taking place in the world. Um, When you look at what's going on in California, I have a very good friend, actually, who's a dean of a a college in in, um, California, and I can tell you the kind of cuts he's had to make over the last couple of years would... um, make all of us shiver uh, in terms of the dramatic nature of those cuts. And then when you contrast that with what's going on in China uh, in particular, uh, when I started doing uh, work in, uh, with China uh, when I was at the U of A, the real interest in China was to get students over to Canada so that they could get a degree in, and learn English, etc. There's a real transition taking place now in China, and the interest now is much more in collaboration, much more in, in um, looking at how they can strengthen their universities. And I would say we're going to see some interesting trends over the next number of years whereby the pool of students we have recruited from China to uh, build our, our um, international base and our graduate programs is going to shrink. And uh, China and, and that machinery uh, on the academic front is going to explode. So it, it's a tremendous um, challenge for us moving into the future. And, uh, you know, as to your question of how can, how can the average citizen um, contribute to the conversation, I would say that it's absolutely critically important that individuals who are um, citizens in a, in a constituency 
that have a relationship with whether it's an MLA or MP um, communicate regularly about the critical importance of, of post-secondary education for uh, our young people because uh, number one from a positioning perspective for, for our young people when we look at just the economics of having a high school versus a college versus a, a university degree, we know that the uh, salary differences are still quite significant. But when we think about how this then affects the, the overarching uh, quality of life and economy of communities, it's dramatic. And uh, the earlier comment about uh, um, that one of the, the questioners uh, made about deciding to come to Lethbridge because there was a college and a university is absolutely correct. And I think that this is one of the things that we have to help our politicians understand is the critical importance of post-secondary education. And uh, this is a challenge for us. Um, I would say, to be fair to the provincial government, in the last few years, uh, other than the last couple of years, they were, they, there was some significant dollars brought to bear. We saw four years in a row 6% increases, and we saw some significant capital funding. But that was in the good times, and this is the big challenge now. Now that we're in more economic, economically challenged times, it's convincing politicians that this is not the time to, um, to diminish support for post-secondary education. In fact, it's the time uh, to do the opposite. And I'll end with um, to let you know that just in January, the four universities of comprehensive, uh, four presidents of the comprehensive universities in Alberta and, and our board chairs met with the minister. And our message really was that given all that's going on in California and other parts of uh, North America around declining support for um, post-secondary education, this is the absolute perfect time for Alberta to put more money into post-secondary education because from a positioning perspective, it is sort of... Um, there's a multiplying effect because we know that there are so few resources being put into places like California. The minister was actually quite um, supportive of that perspective. Um, we have some interesting changes that are going to take place over the next uh, number of months, and so we're going to probably be uh, working with some new folks, whoever they are, and this will continue to be our message going forward is the value and importance of post-secondary education. So... All right, so that concludes our question period for today. Dr. Mann, on behalf of SACPA and everyone in this room, we'd just like to thank you for coming out here and sharing your, uh, your thoughts on a very important subject. So thank, thank you. you.